Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, episode 61. I just looked it up. It is 61. 61. And we have a guest with us today for Books and Business, friend of the program, Dr. Josh Boyd. Also known as Puddle Glum in some quarters. I like that name, Puddle Glum. How are oh, you known yeah. as Puddle Glum? Oh, my disposition, my demeanor. <laughs> it's just so you're I've been listening short. to the silver chair on the way to work, and oh, that's I find a... that he's a, he's a soul with which I have much in common, Puddle Glum. My brother-in-law, Danny Capon, has been called Puddle Glum. He fits that persona oh, yeah. as well. He's Capon one is... of my favorite characters yep. in the Narnia sphere. I think Reapy Cheap is number one, and then Puddle Glum for me is number two. I don't know. But, I mean, we could get into a Narnia ranking character contest here. Uh, no, that's here. okay. My son Josiah <laughs> really likes Puddle Glum as well. He wanted to I get knew a Tim mug, would be the one that... A mug with Puddle Glum on him. <laughs> there you go. So... That would be an awesome mug. Do we have any announcements? Uh, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. It's Happy coming. Happy New Year. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's just jump into the Thinklings business then. Oh, this is where I say books and business. It is where you say books <laughs> and business. You need to be, how did you not know what's going on there, Tim? Come on, brain part. And then after <laughs> you, you say <laughs> after you say books and business, I say let's talk about some books. Oh, so now you can. And I will start. I will start first. And I'm glad we have Dr. Boyd, Dr. Puddleglum here. Because uh, this, this book so was a re- sort of a recommendation from him. I'm glad that others. you. I'm glad that you said you will start first. I will start first. Man, you know, if you're around me long enough, you're gonna find me to have many, many dangling modifiers and such uh, atrocities. You just roll your eyes. That's all. <laughs> yeah, Josh. What was it? We basically just make word salads on this show, just so you know that. <laughs> <laughs> to that I say, let us leave. Oh. Oh, nice. <laughs> you which got a leads nice us to too. the author of the book, which is Leif. I thought it was Leif. It is. How do we pronounce his name? Leif Unger. Leif Unger. And it's it's French, Dr. Boyd informed me. Well, no, I just was talking about how to pronounce the E-N. I oh, don't okay. know what his... It's not French. If, he, if you're listening to this, Leif... Uh, Mr. Hit, hit, Mr. Unger. Mr. <laughs> Get us up. Is it Mr. or Doctor? Just Mr. Puddle Glum. Anyway, um, so the book is Peace Like a River. I think I mentioned it last week, right? Yes? Yes. And I've made a substantial dent into the book. And uh, I would say at this point, I don't, I don't want to give any spoils away. Um, I would definitely say you need to go read it. I, what, what I really like about the book, I don't know how to describe it, but just it captures a sense of, of a story so well and it draws you in and it's descriptions of things. And there's so many little phrases that you go back and read again. And you're like, Ooh, that was, that was an interesting way to say that. And there's really great character development. And then the, the I mean, I'm just being super vague here cause I'm not giving anything away. Something happens in the, in the course of this family's life together. It's a dad, two sons and a daughter and something happens to one of the sons, and then that's kind of the track of the rest of the of the story. And um, it also has this like Western like adventure to it, which I don't know how to explain that without giving things away. But uh, Doctor Boyd is one of the people that has recommended this to me, and so like, give me your sense of the book. Like, what do you think is its value? I, I mean, I I've once I started reading, it's like I can't put it down. Yeah, it's a beautifully written novel um, and Leif Onger by his own admission labors over his works. I think he publishes, you know, books every four or five years. I think he was working on that particular novel for maybe five years, something like that. Hmm. Um, but the family is just drawn so fully and they're so, um, such an attractive family in terms of the relationship that the father has with his children and the love that they have for one another, which is, something that's tested uh, in the novel. Uh, but yeah, beautifully written, hilarious. It has a lot of Mark Twain uh, sensibilities to it in the humor, uh, particularly the narrator, Ruben, and some of the experiences. So yeah, I don't want to give too much away either, but 
it's an excellent, excellent novel. Yeah. So as you're thinking about the story, there's something that happens right away that kind of perks your theological ears. There, there's, I would say that so far, if I was to take a spiritual, I think it's pretty low hanging fruit. This Andy's over here pouring a cup of coffee and it's just like enticing me. But no, I'm good. I'll take it. Okay. <laughs> oh, sorry about the mic. Yikes. They'll love hearing that. Um, so low hanging fruit from the book right away. The, the narrator, Ruben, who's the younger of the two sons, starts describing his dad as someone who can do miracles. And then as he describes his dad throughout the book, there is this emphasis on his prayer life, which I just, it's interesting how it's brought up and um, different contexts of doing miracles and praying for certain things. And um, it, it, it reminded me like, man, you need to pray more. <laughs> like it definitely hit me with, and that's, I think that's low hanging fruit. Like, Oh, this character does that thing. And I want to do that thing. And you know, it's not, sometimes when you read books, you don't need to, you don't need to go all sensor plenier and like try to find this deeper meaning, you know, like whoa, sometimes whoa. they're there. Like there's deeper themes and ebbs and flows that you connect over time. Uh, like we were talking about one just before we started recording about, there's some, I'll just say courtship going on in the book with different characters and how they're put next to each other. And one of them is in a very virtuous sense and one of them is not. And I think you're intended to maybe think about that, but you know, there's, there's deeper themes like that. And then there's like, you like this character and he prays a lot. So, but that would be my, like so far, like my big takeaway is like, man, I, I do love how he paints the father of the family as a, as a man of faith. And I don't know, but and I, I would just quickly add to that, it's the father's faith and the way that he goes about things that is a frustration to Reuben, particularly early in the novel where he wants his father to act and his brother does act and that's what brings about some of the tension. So it's really beautifully laid out and the father is a very honorable, attractive character. And then, and then the daughter is a budding author herself and uh, there, she just does some really funny things. And I don't want to give away some, but there, there's a particular scene where she does something to somebody's car. And uh, when you realize what has happened, she, she pretty much like sabotages this person's car by putting something in the gas tank. And I mean, that's probably going to give something away if someone goes and reads it. You'll put the pieces together. But once, once that is revealed, it's like, oh, man. That was a really a fun moment, but yeah, so great book. I'm probably gonna finish it probably tonight or tomorrow. Just, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm at work and all I want to do is just like go home and read this book, and so that's a good sign. Um, I, mean, I, I, I think I can't remember what I said last week, but it's firmly in like the four, five, six range. It is, it is, re- it is really well written. It's just the descriptions of what's going on. There's, I wish I could just like keep a tra- keep track of the phrases that jump out to me and like you go back and you read them again and it's just they're crafted so well but anyway so yeah peace like a river by leif unger that's right go ahead well i uh, am going to talk briefly about a book that i picked up i've had it for quite some time but i picked it up just this weekend because i'm wanting to refresh a little bit on poetry but it's uh, literature a student's guide written by lewis marcos who teaches down at houston baptist University. He teaches in the English department, the honors school. He is a classicist by training, I believe. And so he has several books that are helpful for Christians as you think about reading some of those pagan classics, uh, the Odyssey, the Iliad, uh, Sophocles, so forth. Uh, but this guide in particular, it's, it's called a literature or literature, a student's guide, but he makes the admission early on in the book that it's really about poetry. <laughs> and that's what he's going to spend his time describing. So he has a chapter on kind of the rhythm of poetry, the figurative language of poetry. And then he has a survey of great poets and poetry that people should read. And then he interacts with some of the criticism, uh, modern and postmodern criticism, and some of the reasons they come to their conclusions and, and so forth. It's a really helpful little guide, and I'd encourage you to pick it up. Does he go through like figures of speech? He does. Explaining like metaphor, metonymy, synecdoche, all that stuff. Yes. I've been looking for a smaller book because mine is, I haven't found like something that 
It's a small little book. That might work pretty well, actually. Yeah, it's it's surprisingly thorough, I think, for being such a short book. Yeah. Uh, but the the chapter on rhythm and rhyme goes through some of the kind of main structures of poetry in mm-hmm. terms of the rhythm and how poets use rhythm and meter. And then the figurative language chapter has all those you know those figurative techniques that you mentioned. I have my Hebrew exegesis two class where we go through Hebrew poetry. The rhythm and rhyme section would be pretty worthless. <laughs> but the figures of speech, a lot of students, they just don't understand similes, metaphors, metonymies, synecdoche. So having like a concise guide, I've actually talked about how we, I use Zuck. Yeah. Basic Bible interpretation. A lot of times he's got like 40 pages in there, okay. but this could be a nice addition. I'll have to check it out. Yeah. The other thing I want to mention quickly, if shameless plug for the Fundamental Lit Forum. It's a little discussion guide on the great books that we're starting here on campus in the spring. So if you're local and you're a listener, you can join us. We'll send out more information in terms of time when we're gathering. But the book that we're using is a reader called The Great Books Reader, and it's edited by John Mark Reynolds. It has brief introductory essays, and then after each little excerpt from a great book, it has a reflective essay as well. Obviously, ideally, we would read the great books themselves, but we can't do that for sake of time. So maybe this will be something that would whet the appetite of our attendees to actually pick up the full works and read them at some point. Well, first of all, Josh, I just want to say that you don't have to be shameless about your plug here. Just be completely unshamed. Like, this is what we want. And then secondly, uh, so could you tell for the listeners, what's what's a great book? And then why would you want to read them? Could you maybe do that in like two minutes or more? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Well, the great books are uh, the works of literature and philosophy and theology in the Western tradition that have kind of been agreed upon as the works upon which our culture rests. Um, Obviously, in an anthology like this, there are some that are going to be left out. But to give you some examples, we're talking about some of those Greek epics that I've mentioned before, uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey, uh, the Roman epic, the Aeneid, works like the Consolation of Philosophy by Boethius, John Milton's Paradise Lost, Dante's uh, The Divine Comedy, and then Shakespeare, and the list goes on and on. Um, but those are the great books. There's actually a whole program, the Great Books Discussion Program, that's founded on these great books as well. Harvard has their collection of great books, which is very similar to the Harvard Classics. Um, so these are works that are part of a classic education, um, the education that our forefathers we're all that all had as a foundation in their schooling um, so yeah we want to just make sure that we're trying to present this material to our students as well and one thing I find interesting about it is there's a sense in which when students read a great book they just they know it and they invest in it because they understand that it's important and it's saying things that are important and I've had conversations with you Andy where you've encountered something and then you've encountered it in a great book and you've realized, oh, that's what yeah. maybe C.S. Lewis or whoever was actually interacting with. Mm-hmm. That's the idea that's being presented there. So that's part of it, just being well-rounded in one's education is having that foundation. It's intriguing because most of the early authors that I can think of off, off just going off the table of contents are authors we don't talk about every single one of them in detail, but they all get mentioned in Western Civ. And I, I never saw that connection. So I think that's... I'm very excited about that, so I'll definitely be attending whenever I'm able. Yeah, there's, if you want to go and, I mean, as we're talking about reading great books, here's a YouTube video. Um, Jordan Peterson, the, like, 12 Steps thing for, like, uh, I I can't remember what the name of his book is, but he's got a YouTube video uh, from a few years ago where he and another guy are discussing, like, what is a classic? And his definition, or just the way he words it in that video is really helpful, He's like, it's, it's, it's a work that has disproportionately stimulated other great works. And then he, you know, I, I don't buy into a lot of Peterson's philosophy on life, but he then says, so the, the classic is the Bible because it has stimulated more other great works than anything else. And so you really, sh- that, I mean, it, it, we don't really think about the Bible as a literature classic, but it is by that definition. And all of the guys in this great books reader are interacting with ideas that either directly or indirectly intersect into the themes of scripture, uh, especially in like a wisdom philosophical vein. And so uh, 
that, that I would go look up that video and that might send you down a rabbit trail of like, oh, these are books I should read. Cause then from there it's like, what books should people be reading? And then there's all these other YouTubers are like, read these books. And some of those videos are helpful and some of them are just straight trash. But, um, so, and then as an anecdote on that note, I was at a, I was at a Christmas party on, on Friday night. Look at that. He makes that statement and just boom, right into his anecdote. And well, here's the thing. So there's a white elephant gift exchange. And one of the white elephant gifts was the Theban plays. Did I say that correctly? Um, by Sophocles, which Dr. Boyd has mentioned on this podcast. And then it was a like anniversary edition of the horse and his boy, a C.S. Lewis book. And the, the reason that it was white elephanted was because the person who got them as a gift had already owned them. So it was like a re-gift because they already owned the books. But I was just, I'm sitting there in this group of like 20 people and I'm like, you have the option to steal. And I'm pretty sure in this group of 20 or 25 people and you know, they'll listen to this and they'll know I'm talking about them. So fine. But of that group, of that group, there's maybe one person who's actually read Sophocles, like these, these great classics. And I'm pondering as we go around the circle, I'm like, you're considering literally someone is considering stealing a cast iron pan and there's these books sitting there and nobody wants them. And I'm like, this is in, in, right in line. Pun intended, it's a tragedy. And um, I just love the laugh I'm getting. And so it got to me and I'm like, give me the books. Like I, like I already have Horse and His Boy. So if anyone listening to this wants a free range copy, free range is it's not in with the other ones. Is it grass fed? Yeah, it is. Gluten free? Yikes. <laughs> the least Moses could do anyway. Um, <laughs> horrendous. Uh, but so if, if you'd want a copy of normally you would buy the Narnia books together as a set. So you have all of them. If anyone out at there the faith wants store. at the faith bookstore, if anyone wants just a copy of a horse and his boy, I have one that I will give to you. Just come to my office at the Domicos building at the school. Should do a giveaway on the podcast again and give it oh, away. Yeah, We should. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. First person <laughs> to go on social media and post a picture of themselves with like the expression on their face is, man, I want this book so badly. You have to like make, it's the best face wins. That's what I'm trying to say. Like you, you tag thanklings and you're like, I want the horse and his boy book. Best one will win. There's the contest. Or like, I want the horse and the boy book this bad. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Show us that in a picture with your face. Boom. And, uh, so, uh, yeah, I'll give that one away, but I didn't have the Theban plays. And so I'm like, man, there's like, it's like, these are classics. And it's like, nobody in this room is valuing this. Like it's even the fact that it's like, I understand why it was given as a white elephant gift, but even the fact that it is present at a white elephant gift is like, I'm just sitting there like, this is like, I wanted to like defend them. I wanted to be like, but also at this white elephant. And then with this all, you know, we'll be done with my <laughs> tirade. Someone as a white elephant gift, uh, gave live goldfish. What? Like they went to Petco and got, a bag with little goldfish wow, in it and put brilliant. it in a bag. And so someone opened and the gift was a can of like fish food. And then this like plastic baggie with gold, live goldfish <laughs> in it. No bowl, no anything. Just like, here's a bag with fish and fish food. It was, I thought that was hilarious. And then, uh, yeah. So that, that was probably the best white elephant gift I think I've ever wow. seen. That's impressive. But, and they probably didn't live long. I have on good authority that they were, uh, relocated to a <laughs> pond that is currently located near us on this campus. I I have a video on my phone of someone relocating these free range goldfish. That's awesome. No, no, the water doesn't. The water's great all the way over down. There. It's so clean. Oh those gold those goldfish are gonna grow fat and happy and be <laughs> theologically correct. That's right. Anyway. So for my books and business, I want to start off by saying one of our listeners came up to me this week and expressed their sincere condolences after hearing you and I talk about the Hawkeye game where we got destroyed. And now he was an Iowa State fan, but Ethan Wilson, thank you for your sentiment. I appreciate that you listen to the podcast. But he was, was honestly it sincere. Sad. It was sincere. Was it sincere? Yeah. No, he was definitely sincere. I don't believe it. No, yeah. it was. I don't know. What's oh, his Ethan, name? Ethan Wilson. He's, Ethan. he's a completely. <laughs> Who do you think you are? What? He was Ethan. being 
he was he loves our podcast. He was being sincere. Okay, maybe he was a little. I don't know. Maybe he's a little joke. He is an Iowa State fan. He is. I do think they maybe, can't be trusted. Maybe, <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. Yes, they can. Andrew Gogarty is a beloved friend, and he's an Iowa State fan. And Doctor Doug. Well, okay. I don't care about either. <laughs> All right, quick, quick, quick. Let's move he's on. He's a beloved friend too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So for my books and business week, not sports updates. Um. So I have finished Wing Feather Book Four, and I will just say, if you haven't read these. You should read them. They're excellent. The ending was not like I, I saw some things coming. Some things happened that I thought would happen, just not the way I thought they would happen. And other things I had literally no idea what was going to happen. It was excellent. So, and it, and, and I will just warn you, brought me to tears. Big, manly, theological tears. Okay. I'm just going to say that. Okay, a couple of questions. And we can't spoil it. <clears throat> no spoiling. Because Dr. Boyd informed us that he has now started. The Wing Feather Saga. Oh, this is so, so good. So we don't give any we don't give anything away. Okay. No, not even a little nugget of anything away. No nuggets. Okay. <laughs> Picked up on that one right, right away. Okay. Um, so You guys did, are so horrendous. So for me, for for me, mm-hmm. I I thought the bigger of the two uh we'll say climactic reveals of the full story, and one of them corresponds to book three and one of them corresponds to book four. I thought the one in book three was, I think, a little bit more... I, I thought the lead-up and the the reveal of that one was a little bit more... was more superior, more... There we go again. Word salad. I just need Dr. Boyd sitting here on my shoulder always making me think about what I'm saying. It was It's superior to the way he does it in book four because I think book four, you kind of see it coming quite a way off. And you don't see the end of book three until boom, there it is. You know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it was completely unexpected. Yeah. What? So you had mentioned to me you, that you thought three. I don't know. Three had a bigger impact, or three. I was... thought. I thought the the. <clears throat> I feel like the the story was being told in books one, two, and three, and then book four, he was trying to tell me the end of the story, like not telling the story, just okay. He's ending his story. I thought book three was more emotional. So I don't know if it's a classic case of it being built up in my head differently because mm. I knew this from you. I'm not sure. So like I oversold to, it. Well, no, I don't know that it would say that, but like, <laughs> so, so when the, when the original prequels of star Wars came out, you like did episode one, it. two and three and uh, everyone's trashing them, I didn't see them right away. And then when I finally saw them, I thought they were okay, but I think it's because I had such low expectations. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to, in my head think, was I expecting something bigger but I literally, I think because I knew to expect something, I was like, my mind was thinking of what it might be. And then when the thing happened, I remember thinking like, huh? Like literally, like there was no like emotion. It was like, wait, what? I, the whole time I was just confused. And so it wasn't, it wasn't emotional at first. And then it took, I don't know, quite a bit of the telling of that part of it for me to go, oh, and then I was like, it was amazing, and the and the like her, her, the uh, the stuff that I can't talk about to give it away. So I don't know if that's it, but I really liked four, and I liked four. Not if I say better, it makes it sound like three is bad. It's not. I just I, I four was awesome. It was like mm. three was really really good too. I would say it's awesome too. Yeah, there. I mean, and just, I'm not I'm not dogging yeah, book four either, exactly. Yeah, because one, the the moment I got done with book four, my first thought was. I need to read these again, like yep. all of them. And so, uh, <clears throat> again, but so what's interesting, as we mentioned, Leif Unger. So, uh, what is the, oh man, I'm gonna, I'm, I should have brought the book with me. There's a female character in what, what's the girl's name in the, in the hometown that Ruben is fancy towards? Do you remember her name? Something Orchard. Is it Sarah Orchard yep. or something like that? that be because then there's a character in Wing Feather. Oh, it's like Sarah, Sarah Cobbler. It's something, there's Sarah Cobbler. I don't think it's Sarah. It's, uh, it's something like that. But I was reading it and I was like, you know, I just wonder huh. if the author of Wing Feather had been like, here's it's Sarah Cobbler, you know, and then there, the other one was something Orchard. And it's both like a love interest of the main character, which is a young boy. And I'm just like, hmm. And you know, you know, there's not, you know, 
there's not thousands of stories. There's like three and they're all just that yeah. same arc is told in many different ways. But I was reading it and I was like, man, that is like almost the same thing. And I would just be really curious if uh, good old AP had read Peace Like a River. I'm sure he has. I, I think it's actually mentioned in it, Adorning yeah, the Dark. Adorning the Dark. Yeah. I would say the other thing about the Wingfeather series, I want to, like you said, you want to read him again. And without you saying that, like you didn't like sell that. And I, I really totally agree with you. I think there's, th- this is the kind of book I could go back to a couple of times and keep pulling stuff. And the other thing I would say is I don't know that I would draw any of my theology from it. Okay. So you don't want to go to a fiction book and draw theology direct, but it's interesting the way some deep theological truths were illustrated in a way where my heart wanted them, desired them. Like a good thing was presented as good and I want that good thing. And I thought he did really well with that. And so the idea of like it tuning your soul a little bit or like, uh, I think we talked about this. I can't remember the words we were using, but anyways, I would say it does something inside of you that's good. And uh, there are other ones where, you know, like, like uh, Harry Potter was a really cool story and there were some good things in it, but this one was, was want, it was showing good things as good so that I wanted the good things. And I thought it was very noticeable and there's a lot of echoes of theology all throughout. So I would love to go back and just pull out theological tidbits. Having finished the series, throw it on the scale. I'm having well, a hard okay, time. Tim, what's I'm your having, book? having a hard time not giving it a 10. Oof. But I don't think I've ever given it a 10, so I'll give no. it a 9. Yeah. I'll give it a 9. Maybe, maybe an 8. It eight is or like 9. 8 or 9. I would say 8 or 9. What would you give it, Charlie? It's fiction. It's still fiction. I think, I think with what it is aimed... So, like, understanding what it's intended to be is really helpful. Yeah. So, think about, like, Narnia, for example. It is, an, it is a children's series. That's a good point. And it captures in a story for children an incredible depth yeah. of desire mm-hmm. and theology. Yep. And I think Wingfeather does the exact same thing. Yeah. But So, in that genre of, like... Narnia, mm-hmm. you know, f- Christian fiction, like, you know, it, well, no, I'm not going to qualify it, yeah. but in that vein, it's, it's really good. But it's really good. It, I don't yeah. think it's, I don't think it captures Narnia-esque vibes, but it's re it's the closest thing I've ever experienced to yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, after reading a, a series. Have you, you read know, the Ember series? I have not. So I would, read the I would put the Ember series up there also. I don't, I I would say this is, you should like, you should own it. You yeah. should go to Faith yep. Bookstore right now and buy the box set of a- Andrew Peterson's yeah. Wingfeather Saga for forty four ninety nine. I really enjoyed it. I would say I really enjoyed it and you should. And we were not paid to say that. No, we were not. We don't get paid anything. For another program. <laughs> but we were not, we, there's no stake in the game. And maybe, hopefully you use that code that we gave you for Thanksgiving to get one. Yeah, that's expired. Yeah, it is. I know. Anyway, Tim, you, we're going way too long, Tim. Yeah, you are. <laughs> uh, so the book I have won't take long. <clears throat> it's called The Flirtation Experiment by Lisa Jacobson and Felicia Masonheimer. I don't know how to say those names exactly, but there we go. <laughs> your, your books are always just, that's all I'm going to say. They're just awesome. So I've been trying to study flirting a little bit. You have flirting in the Song of Songs. What's so funny? You do have flirting in the Song of Songs. I'm laughing at Andy, who's laughing. Okay, sure. Sorry, you just said that you're studying flirting and no one's making a joke. That's all. I, I'm going to go back to muting my mic. So in Song chapter, Song of Songs chapter 2, um, you have this, it's chapter 1 and chapter 2, you have this dialogue between the two lovers. And the message is that, they're well, they're flirting. They're talking back and forth to one another. And they're flirting with one another. And it's uh, awakening and so then at the end of the entire section, you have the adjuration refrain, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the does of the field, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. So you're not supposed to awaken love until a specific time. And then how were they awakening love right before that? By flirting. Okay. That's really good. Wow. That's so, really good. Anyway, that's one of the points that I'm making in my Song of Songs for Singles book. But within this book, the flirtation experiment, which it's directed towards married couples, so 
that be Song of Songs material, exactly Song 1 and 2, the flirtation experiment, putting magic, mystery, and spark into your everyday marriage. But it just illustrates how um, uh, people um, make assumptions about the Word of God that it doesn't have anything to say, okay, uh, about things like flirting. And they actually talk about uh, flirting in their single years and how it was looked down upon and you weren't supposed to do it. And they're like, well, why? what was wrong with this? I mean, we don't see any problem with this. I'm trying to find the spot. I lost it. Here it is. Once I started dating, these regulations on flirting became a heavy burden to bear. I debated whether I could show interest, and if so, how much. So they're making a difference, or they're making an equation between two things, flirting and showing interest. And they're saying that's the same thing. Okay, I would say that those are two different things. Where was the line for a godly woman who just plain liked a guy? As I dug deeper into the word, I couldn't find a solid case against flirtation when it was expressed to a person you generally wanted to date. See, so our ignorance of the revelation of God's word, specifically the Song of Songs, which would say, hey, guess what? Okay, there are limitations on flirting, and it's right here in Song 1, and then in 2-7, you're not supposed to awaken love. Flirting is awakening. Okay, so they're completely oblivious to actually the instruction from God's word. So the book that I have is The Flirtation Experiment, Putting Magic, Mystery, and Spark into Your Everyday Marriage. And this is just a little exegetical, practical nugget that um, will hopefully incorporate its way into our book. I'm, I'm hopeful of the book. I think it could be a good book, but I, I haven't gotten very far in it yet. Okay. So, by the way, we did get a, we got a, I can't remember if it was a Facebook message, Instagram, I think it was Instagram. Jill Blanc wrote in and said that we should come up for, we should typecast a character, a name for books that are bad that we don't want to read. Like we have this goodness list, but where do we put the books that we don't think you should read? They're bad books. We should come up with like an evil name for them. And like, Oh, that book's on the whatever list or it's a, you know, like we were talking about Dyson earlier. Like that's a Dyson. I mean, I don't know anything about Hugo Dyson. I should be careful, but that would work. I was just going to say something about, you could put it in the shack. Oh, (laughs) That book goes in the shack. (laughs) (laughs) Have you guys read The Shack? No, just a lot of reviews about how terrible it is. I purchased it, like, in my, like, literally probably in the first year or two of Christianity. Yeah. And read, like, a chapter or two, and it didn't, it's it's, it's not a good story. It didn't capture, you know, like. Yeah. And then I, you know, after having it on the shelf for a while, when you have Shack on the shelf, and then, you know. (laughs) You, horrendous i realized what it was you know maybe like not great like it's depiction of who god is and some, some things like that i just heard some of the the ramble and uh and so then i never finished it i was like this isn't worth my time so i i shacked the shack we might say oh, i think i've got a copy still because i i felt that i needed to read it but you should call it the shack stack news. the shack that stack. book's on the shack stack i like that i like that it's not bad but i think we should read the shack first at least one of us. It, well, wouldn't the Shack Stack, by the virtue of the name Shack Stack, be on the Shack Stack? Like all the other Shack Stack books are on top of the Shack in the same stack? I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> so I haven't read it, but I, I know a couple of people who have, and I've talked to them about it. So I should, I'd be happy to read it sometime. Maybe we should call him like Shaquille O'Neal or something like that. Like you know, That's the name. It's funny, because we're talking about the Shack, the book, but you kept saying the Shack Stack. And yeah. you know that gif of him where he like eats a hot wing and he's like, ooh. Like, like ooh, yeah, that's heresy, you know, or something like that. <laughs> anyway, so here's what's in this episode. Uh, this is part two of The Shrewd Steward from Luke 15. And uh, we had the, the first part a while back. And so we just talked more about that passage and what it means and all that stuff. And so enjoy that. And thanks for listening. And we will see you next week with our, is next week the Christmas episode? I will check. I'm pretty sure it is. I think it is. I think it is. I think it's It's this. next week. Let's have part two of our conversation on the shrewd steward from Luke 16. Woo-woo. Woo-woo. Really quickly, <laughs> let's just review. That was the caffeine talking. I, ladies we, and gentlemen, caffeinated we, we have one vibed of the quite a bit this morning on the coffee. I've ever seen. Okay. So Luke 16, there's a parable, <laughs> and the main characters are someone who's really rich. He has a lot of money. 
He has a steward who's keeping his, managing, keeping his money. And then uh, there are people that benefit from the dishonest but shrewd actions of the manager when he gets fired. We're going to get into that in a moment. But the backdrop of this, remember we looked at this in the previous episode, all throughout the book of Luke, there are these interactions with Jesus and sinners, and the Pharisees are just there as this like side character, and they always get upset about Jesus forgiving sinners, eating with sinners, and it's because they're the righteous ones. And if Jesus is really the teacher from God, the son of God, which I didn't like him being the son of God, they thought that was blasphemous, but if he's really that guy, why in the world does he interact with sinners like this? Why does he forgive sinners like that? Why does he eat with them? Why does he let them touch him? They hated it because they thought they were very righteous and they thought these people are way sinful. There's no way these people are getting into the kingdom. And the whole point is, well, no, if you believe and repent, you're in. So with that in mind, the backdrop of those interactions with the Pharisees, go back to Luke 16 and let's walk down through the story. So again, rich man, gives all of his riches to this steward to manage. He hears, verse 2, uh, verse 1 and 2, that this guy's not doing a good job, and he's like, I'm firing him. Calls him into the office, like, you're done, buddy. Turn in your books. This guy, the manager, knows, I've lost my job. I have to, uh, I have to figure out how I'm going to provide for myself. He starts thinking about his future. And what does he do in verse five and six. He calls the master's debtors. He says, Hey, how much do you owe? And the first one says, I owe a hundred measures of oil really quickly. This is an exorbitant amount of oil. Uh, the term for measures is a batos. And I, I just like a bath, think about like a bath of oil, fill out, fill up a bathtub with like 10 gallons of oil a hundred times. Think about how much oil that would be. Goodness. This is, a huge amount of wealth. He's like, oh, you owe a hundred? No, no, no. Sit down and write 50. So this is a really good deal for the debtor and the manager, but not the rich man. Why? So when the manager gets fired and he's hungry, guess who he can go to? Hey, Mr. Oil Man, remember when I saved you on 50 measures of oil? You think you could give me a plate of food tonight? Maybe give me a place to sleep? does the same thing in verse seven. The guy owes a hundred measures of wheat. He says, take your bill, write 80. He's doing the same thing. Now, uh, some commentators get caught up on the difference between going from 50 to 80. Like why does one go to hundred to 50, one hundred eighty? It's that these two commodities would have had different market values. We don't know what they were, but the principle is the same. He's being very shrewd. Mm. He's thinking about his future. That's what the word means to think carefully about what's going to happen when he's fired. In an earthly way, he is securing for himself friends so that when he doesn't have a job, he doesn't have income, these debtors are going to give him things. They're going to be nice to him because of what he did for them. Now, verse 8, it's very clear. What the guy is doing is wrong. He's a dishonest manager. And the master probably isn't happy about how he's losing money on this. But the master commends him for what? The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Okay, so what's going on in verse 8 and 9? Really quick. The man in the story, the manager, is the parallel to the sons of this world, the sinners, the ones that are always doing the wrong things. They're unrighteous, they're dishonest, and even that man knows to make a decision that impacts his future. Do you remember the deferred marshmallow test we talked about last episode? He understands, I need to do something now to secure the future. Two marshmallows later is better than one marshmallow now. So let's secure, you know, some meals in the future. He says, the sons of this world, the sinners know to do that. They're shrewd as they deal with other people in this world, but the sons of light aren't. Now, it's really easy to Christianize this right away. 
I do think that there are some applications to the church, to Christians, with the, the term the sons of light. But I think, given the backdrop of the Pharisees, that that is a broad reference to Israel and that there are people, God's children, the nation of Israel, who aren't thinking about their future. Like, what are you talking about? He says in verse 9, you need to use your wealth to make friends, just like the man in the story, but instead of an earthly dwelling, you're using your unrighteous wealth to secure what? An eternal dwelling. He talks about being a faithful steward. He talks about being faithful in the unrighteous wealth so you can have true riches, eternal riches. And then really the heart of it, if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you what th- that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So the point of the parable isn't, this is how you use your money with earthly friends. It's, no, no, you need to use your money in a way that secures not an earthly thing, but an eternal, heavenly thing. Mm -hmm. So how would one do that? Think about Old Testament context. Think about this story with the people listening. The end of verse 13 tells you, you need to not love money. That's how you use your money to secure eternal dwelling. You don't love it. You love God. Then verse 14. But the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, are what, they hear this and they're like, what? No, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And I think the the primary application, just like the end of chapter 15, is pointing directly at the self-righteous Pharisee. You think you're getting into the kingdom, but you actually love money. You are not using your unrighteous wealth to secure an eternal dwelling. You're thinking about this life now, and you're not thinking about later, and it's demonstrated in the way that you're loving money. And he says that in verse 15, you think that you can, you justify yourselves in a way that God hates. Verse 16, you think you can force your way into the kingdom, but you can't, because you can't serve God and money. So I think, I think that's the big point of it. It, it draws out the self-righteousness of the love of money in the Pharisees. But I'm going to kick it to you guys. So if there's a parable directed to the Pharisees, how do we apply it? And this is where getting, getting across that bridge from Luke writing this to Theophilus, but recording a parable that really points out the unrighteousness of the Pharisees, how would I, you know, bring this to modern context? Well, if I had to take a shot at it, I would say this. I think you're right. I like your explanation. I, I am convinced by what you've said. I think he is aiming at the topic of self-righteousness. And I'm just going to put a little, this is a little caveat. Caveat. Thank you. Um, when we think of the Pharisees, we think of people who like were super holy and uh, were trying to like follow the letter of the law and they thought they were working their way into the kingdom. But like, what's the picture here? They were divorcing. They were loving money. They were living for themselves. They're being very wicked. And so I think like, it's important to remember this is the picture of the Pharisees because sometimes uh, the Pharisees are held up as these like paragons of virtue. And yet they just missed this like getting saved part. But I think they are actually very much uh, not understanding their Bibles very well. You going to jump in on the caveat. Ooh, this is good. (laughs) <laughs> the okay so we were talking off air the the divorce part uh in uh was it verse 18 whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery it seems like just this this uh out in right field not left field left, left field. field come on i like the other metaphor better it's out in right field <laughs> it's not even another metaphor well i'll make it one <laughs> and whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery it's like this made up it's like this thing that doesn't fit the context but really a lot of times um there was a financial component to marriage and divorce there's a dowry associated with marriage and if uh, a woman um uh messed up in the law in some way then she could lose her dowry 
And so it's probably mentioning divorce here because the Pharisees would be able to profit off of the wife in some way or to be able to discard discard her so that she's not a liability. So it probably has even just a financial component to it there in verse 18. Um, so I think that it does kind of fit that context. I, I haven't studied that out extensively, but at least divorce in the ancient Near Eastern world, there was a lot of finances associated with it. All right, so end caveat. So back to the, the passage. I think it really is aiming at the Pharisees and their self-righteousness. I think you've proved that. I'm totally convinced. And so... When I think through the passage now, what I'm convinced of is the main point, the main intention, you might say, that Luke is having, I I would agree, it is to aim at self-righteous people who think they're going to heaven and they're not worrying about it. So so then, I think, is the question you're asking, Mm -hmm. if I, a saved Christian, loving the Lord, come to this passage and say, oh man, I love money this passage means I need to not love money. Is that wrong? Is that a misinterpretation of the passage? Well, I think I can answer, but you go ahead. Well, so, and this is thinking, because most people are going to read this and say, Oh, I should, I should use my money differently. Yeah. So is that okay? I, think, I think, I think okay. the heart of it, and I know Tim, Tim has some thoughts here too, that he wants to jump in on. But when you get to that verse where it says, and this is Jesus, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. A lot of commentaries interact with that phrase. What does it mean for a disciple to make friends with their unrighteous wealth? And it talks about giving and it talks about, you know, uh, not a lot of different things there. But again, the end of that verse, I think, indicates that Jesus is not talking about earth at all. Yes. And, but I do think, so on both sides of the divide of Pentecost, there are commands love God and love your neighbor. And so the law doesn't go, the, the law of loving God first doesn't go away. So how, how high do you have to abstract the parable? I don't think it's wrong for a Christian to say, I should love God. And if I love my money more, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's right on. And I think you can get that from this passage yeah, because... Clearly. And it, it, maybe the main target is to say this about self-righteousness, but what are you learning about self-righteousness? This One of the centers of it is you're not loving God, you're loving something else. So I think as a regenerate Christian, you're looking at this, maybe that's not the main point of the passage, but it's, I think, a principle that's true, and you can carry that over into my life. Even though I'm not a Pharisee, and I'm not a law breaker in this sense, I can say, that does apply to me because it's unrighteous to do that, and I should be putting off those things. And also, I think, think about the Holy Spirit. Uh, you read this, I'm, you know, I'm not the Pharisee, I'm not the, but I have, my heart has been turning to the love of something else. And then I see the unbelievers who think they're saved, that's what Jesus condemns them for. It's almost an argument, argue from, argument from the lesser to the greater. I mean, if an unsaved person, if this is like a sin, and they should see it as an issue, I think that applies legitimately to us as New Testament Christians. And then here's a thought too, is the way that I, as a Christian, in the way that I give, and that includes why I'm giving, what I'm giving to, what I'm loving, all of those inside parts of the Mm -hmm. external action, Mm -hmm. is the way that I'm giving, does that affect eternal reward? And in the parable, the it's not talking about rewards in the sense of like a Christian being rewarded for his service. It's talking about eternal dwelling, salvation, I think is the point. But is the way or the ways that I give as a Christian, will that impact something in, in the future? So the principle, the shrewd steward, he's carefully thinking about his future is there are, are there ways that a Christian can carefully think about their future and the way that they think in their perspective of eternity, uh, would, that, would that change the way they're using their money now? And the answer is absolutely yes. And I know Tim wants to talk about that. So. I just wish we had maybe an illustration of this. You know, maybe if there was like, um, like a, a rich man and he had a lot of money and then Maybe if there was like a, a poor beggar that sat out at his gate and didn't have anything and, you know, he just kind of ate the scraps off of the rich man's floor and 
the dog kind of licked his sores or something. And then we'd have that illustration of this rich man not getting to heaven or something because, you know, he was a lover of money and not a lover of God and being generous with his money and giving it to the poor man. Man, man that was we a, just had an illustration like you, that. Or that something. was really vivid. You just came up with that on the fly? That is really good. So, interestingly <laughs> enough, right after the end of this section, verse 18, another story is told in Luke 16 about a rich man and Lazarus. And there's debate what? as to whether it's a parable or not. Uh, I do not think it's a parable. I think it's a real story. I think it is a parable, but that's okay. We don't need to fight about that here. That'll be a future podcast. There, and there'd be, there'd be reasons why you think it's a parable, why you don't think it's a parable. But uh, again, but the point of that parable is, again, I think it's eternal dwelling. Right, it it's is. Because there's a rich man who is rich. He's really comfortable in mm-hmm. the earthly life, mm-hmm. but then he dies and mm-hmm. he's in torment, everlasting torment, and he can't get to the place of blessing where Lazarus is. He wants to. He wants to go back and warn his family. Hey, don't love money. Like, love God so you can go there. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it, it, it's, again, speaking to uh, just a lot, of, a lot of stories about the peril of riches and how the love of money uh, can keep someone from loving God. And, you know, not, not as if that's, it's a unique thing. Um, but yeah, Tim. So I would just really even encourage our listener to examine your checkbook and to think through checkbook. Is that like so old fashioned? Do people have checkbooks? I know. Anymore? I just, your Apple it's a wallet. metaphor. Take a look at your bank account and look at your uh, credit card and all the expenses that you're spending and all of that. All right. And, um, and think to yourself, okay, how generous am I? And when you see a need, all right, don't ask the person, hey, do you need a little bit of money? Don't do that. Okay, somebody actually um, uh, helped me with this like five years ago. He's like, when you think there's even a need, okay, don't ask. If God's placed a burden upon your heart, just go and give. Just give the money, all right? God's blessed you. He'll take care of you and give. And secondly, don't be cheap, okay? I think it's kind of interesting in the story Um the manager, he halves the one, all right? I mean, that's a lot. I mean, a lot, a lot. That's a big loss. It's a big loss. And um, I, th- I think that you should consider, you know, God's given you, he's blessed you with a lot of money. Give a lot of money. Uh, give it away. Um, I mean, the government's just going to keep printing more anyway, so it's going to be worth less tomorrow, so <laughs> get rid of it now. Uh, and then not every time do you have a big donation. Okay. Sometimes it might be a little bit litter, little, a littler donation. And I personally think that's the analogy with the half and then the, the 20%, you know, you have the 50, 50, and then you have the 80, 20, it's going to be varying amounts, but you look, you assess the need, and then you ask the Lord, Hey, you know what? How much should I be generous? This is what you, you don't care about money. You're a lover of God. Give your money. Don't spend the money on your own pleasures, comforts, luxury. All right? Think through the rich man and Lazarus. Instead, be generous with those funds and give it to those who are in need. If an unrighteous person can understand, I need to cut like half of this off the bill, Uh shouldn't a righteous person be able to do better or at least equal? Is that a wrong application or thought there? Well, I think... So to use, in the weeds in the wrong to, use, to, use a, to use a common phrase, uh, and the quote is, don't make a parable stand on all fours. And I think you need to cut some legs off that parable, Tim. Oh. Um, but cause I, cause I don't, I don't think there's, there's a, a spiritual meaning to the amounts. I think the principle is that he's, he's giving these guys a reduction so that they're friendly to him later. I don't think the, the amount, the amount is significant, but I don't think you could draw out Oh, so sometimes you do 50% and sometimes you do 20. Right, I'm going to say it's like 50 or 20, but I would say that it's generous. I think it's interesting that it's half and then even a 20%, like he's giving a lot. Well, I think I think that's a true principle, but I don't think that's what it's saying cuz he he's not giving it. Yeah, it's not it's not He's his taking money. it from his his master. Now, if we're talking about thievery, I think we got some good principles yeah. on thieving here. Oh, absolutely. So. We've got some great Bank That should be a really up. great way to preach it. Hey, if you want to steal from someone, here's a great way to do it. 
Um, but so, so who do you work for? How much do you think you can embezzle? Yeah. There's a, there's Horrendous. a, I feel like, this I, was like, I feel like I mentioned the office too many times. I, I don't watch it anymore, but there's an episode on there where there's, there's one per, I think it's called the convict. And there's a guy who comes to work at the branch and he was in doing insider trading and he went to prison. And so there's a great character that develops in that episode, prison Mike. And, um, but there's Kevin, this big like oaf of a man in the office. And he's like, yeah, I had him explain to me what insider trading was three times because that sounds a lot like what I do every day. <laughs> and they just never come back to it. <laughs> but it's super funny. Um, so, okay, I do. I want to end with one thought. There, there, it's, it's incredibly difficult to take an obscure parable and bring it into modern relevance uh, especially we, we easily moralize or principalize passages like this because understanding its intent to the original audience is sometimes obscure and difficult. We read a parable about money and we're like, oh, it's about money. So it's about how I spend my money, which I think that's a, a secondary application. But I think the primary application is, and why Luke is recording this is it's, it's one of many interchanges where Jesus is trying to tell the difference between someone who is going to the kingdom or heaven and who's not. And it's, it, it gets into, do you really love God or are you just self-righteous and you love yourself? Uh, but one of the ways we can connect that is, uh, you know, it, as a Christian, we are told how to give and it's never an amount. It's uh, a manner to be a cheerful giver. I have two things I want to say about this and we can close. First is that I have my phone set up so that whenever something is drawn from my bank account, I get a notification and it doesn't matter what that is. Literally this morning, I got a notification that my direct TV for my NFL pass was paid today. And, uh, I actually was going to cancel it cause I was like, I don't need to pay for this, but I do like watching football. So, you know, whatever. Um, and as soon as I saw that, I was like, oh, I hate that. Why am I paying for that? <laughs> I, I hated giving money for something that I love. So how much more, how much more difficult is it to give, truly give to someone uh, where you're getting nothing in return in an earthly, in an earthly way? Like there's, there's nothing I'm getting from this other than to be joyful and giving to my church or to someone who has need. And that is hard for people to do. That's incredibly hard for people to do. And, but for the grace of God and the spirit of God, none of us can do that. Hmm. But we do need to be looking in our hearts and asking ourselves, okay, yeah, I probably give, maybe I don't give at all. Well, start there. Like you need, you should be giving. Uh, what's interesting is the setup in the parable is this guy trying to make sure he's secure. Uh, I, most of our churches have a setup where people can give so that when people are in need, there's money for that, like a benevolence fund or a deacon's fund or something like that. And the, the church and acts is like, they're, they're sharing everything. So within your church, you should, you should feel secure. If you need help, there's probably something there for you. Uh, but then the other side of that is that's because people are giving within the church so that needs are met. Uh, but I think we can give and we cannot do it the right way because our manner is wrong. It's like, we're, we're not happy to, to meet other people's needs and we should. And so if you struggle with that, that's, that's a, an area where you need to be aware of that, uh, the, the tug of the pull of money, and, and you need to repent and, and be willing to give cheerfully. And be free. Yeah, to be free of pull. the bondage of that. Yeah. And the other, the other is a story. I think I've mentioned this before, but uh, my dad was a farmer, and we, we don't have a lot of possessions relating to the farm, but there is, you know, land in Iowa is, is a hot commodity. And uh, for most of my dad's life, he was not a believer. He got saved in his 60s. And he watched uh, portions of the farm back in the 70s and 80s uh, get claimed by the bank and sold to other people. Like, it was, it was hard for farmers in the 80s. And he watched land get taken and sold. And uh, for most of his life, never really had a lot in the bank account. Farming's not a lucrative business, unless you have unless you can really, really uh, have a huge enterprise. Small farms can't really make a lot of money now. Uh, and he was pretty, I'll use a very fi uh, savvy financial term. He was pretty grubby. 
Um, and he, I think I got some of my stinginess from him even just the way that he was careful about how he paid for things. It's interesting when he got saved, how that changed. And I can remember when having some conversations with him regarding farm expenses and farm income and the change in his language from my farm to my money from my farm, my money to, wow, look what God has given us. Mm-hmm. Mm. Look how God has blessed mm. us. Amen. Amen. And that should be mm-hmm. the initial and ongoing change that's taking place in our hearts as it regards money. And so uh, I think we take, take a primary application from the, from the parable. You know, you might love money because you're not redeemed and you think you are. And you're unrighteous and you need to be forgiven and great. Jesus does that. If you are a Christian and you're wanting to, you know, not be a lover of money, but a servant of God, how do you do that? Uh, Think about the way you give. Think about how you give. Do you love meeting other people's needs or are you really content to serve yourself with money? And uh, we'll just end with this, you know, money is a great servant, but it's a horrible master. So don't live your life for it. Love God, not money, because you cannot serve two masters. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books. Talk about them with your friends and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast.